the verse that is the theme for the conference, Colossians. So let's read Colossians chapter 2. We're reading verses 6 and 7. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Let's read the beginning, uh, verse 6 again and the beginning of 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Reading verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I want you to note the last sentence, that the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And now we want to read several passages from the Gospel of John. So, be ready. Uh, we are starting from the very beginning. John chapter 1. Let's read verse 1. Gospel of John chapter 1, the first verse, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 4. In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And of course I want to note the word receive, which is the same that we find in our theme verse. So again, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. See, in chapter 1, we want to read the testimony of John about the Lord Jesus. And we are going to read uh, a part of that testimony, starting on verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of the heaven, and he remained upon him. He, the Spirit, remained upon him, the Lord Jesus. Okay? Verse 33. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptizing water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have bore witness that this is the Son of God. The last verse of this, the same chapter, verse 51, chapter 1. And he, the Lord Jesus, said to him, Nathaniel, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And from the passage uh, our Brother Maurice read yesterday morning, chapter 3, we want to read just a couple of verses. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it, it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And let's read verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And now from the verses that Brother Lawrence opened the conference yesterday, chapter 4. We want to begin from uh, verse 10. And of course the context here is that dialogue that Jesus is having with that Samaritan woman, right? In verse 10 it says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And in the same chapter, verse 23, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people are the uh, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. Chapter seven. You want to read two verses. Actually, three verses, starting from verse 37. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke, of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. Only till then. And then from the discourse in the upper room, chapter 14, we just want to read one verse as a sample of a thought that is 
recurrent in those three chapters, right? And that is in chapter 14. You want to read verse... Actually, let's, re- let's read a couple of verses. Let's start on verse 25. John chapter 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring you to remember all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And finally, two two verses, or two passages, I should say, in chapter 20, the closing of the Gospel. Let's read chapter 20, verse 22. And the context is Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection for the first time. And the Lord says to them, uh, verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And finally, verses 30 and 31 in the same chapter. John 20, 30 and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time that you have prepared for us. We thank you for your wonderful grace, Lord in allowing us to read your precious word. And Lord, we confess before you that only you, Lord, can open your own words to us. Unless you do that, it will remain something closed that we don't understand or just a a theory or a tradition. So Lord, even as have been prayed earlier this morning, our desire is after you. We want indeed, Lord, to touch those living waters even this morning. So we pray, Lord, would you, in your grace and mercy, would you come and somehow speak to each one of our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would make your your word clear, that you would translate it to the understanding, to the level of each one of us. Our desire, Lord, is to see you, to somehow touch what is in your heart for this time. And we thank you, Lord, because you are the faithful one. We pray for the enabling for both speaking and hearing. Do it, Lord, we pray, for your own glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so I just want to point a couple of things out from uh, the the theme of this conference. And probably I'm going to be reiterating a lot of things that Maurice said yesterday morning. I don't know if that is a a kind of a benefit or, you know, uh, a hindrance when you speak after someone. I'll take it as a benefit. I'll try to get the positive thing. And I'm obviously kidding. I'm very grateful that our brother already spoke. And I just want to maybe uh, speak many of the things he said from a new angle or a different kind of focus or emphasis. 
So uh, uh, as the first thing that strikes us as we read the theme verse for this conference is that it's very clear that Paul there is describing what is the pattern for Christian growth. There is no question about it, right? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And you know, walk in the Bible very often points to a, a development. Actually, that's the idea. It's a picture, right? When you're walking, you're somehow making progress towards a destination. So the walking is like a picture that already contains in itself the idea of growing, making progress. And Paul very clearly in those verses is establishing what is the pattern of growth in Christian life. And something that our brother said, I want to reiterate this morning. Right? So he said, uh, according to, the, to Paul's statement, Growth in Christian life is of the same nature of that which we received. Let me, let me think this is a little confusing. So let me try to restate this. Our progress in Christian life is of the same nature of what we first received. So in, uh, uh, in contrast to that, you could think that in Christian life we have some experience when we first believed the Lord. And as we move on, the Lord is going to give us some sort of experiences of a different nature, something new that is, is going to cause us to grow in Him or to be rooted, which is, by the way, another picture for growth, being rooted or being built up. But what Paul is saying very clearly is that our growth in the Lord has exactly the same nature as the way we received Him. As you received, right, in that same way, you walk. That is the emphasis of Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. The same nature. And Maurice, I think he made that point very clearly. His emphasis yesterday was on what is the way that we receive the Lord? What happens? What goes into receiving the Lord? And he made five points describing that way as we receive the Lord, right? And let me read it. I don't want to misquote it. So he said, five things go into our, into our receiving the Lord. And this is first seeking. I hope you all, all you have your notice there. And you can correct me if I'm misquoting him. First thing is seeking. Second thing, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Third thing, revelation. And then our response. That's number four. And finally, you have the indwelling part. And his point yesterday is pretty much that. That what goes on when we receive the Lord is the same that is going to happen as we grow in Him. So I would like to essentially go in the same lines of what Maurice said yesterday, but from another angle. So he emphasized the way we receive the Lord. What goes into, and this, he made these five points. To, this morning I want to see the same thing from the angle of what is the nature of what we receive. So I, I, I don't want to go as much into what are the things that happen when we receive the Lord, as he described so well yesterday morning. But I would like to concentrate on what, what is the thing, excuse my language, quote-unquote, what is the nature of what we receive? It's very important that we understand this very clearly. Because if we want to grow, as we said, as the verse is so clear, our growth has to be exactly of the same nature of what we received in the beginning. It's very important, therefore, that we are very clear about, okay, after all, 
what is exactly what we received? And this may seem a kind of a, a, a very obvious, and in a sense it is. It is like, duh, well, it's, it's already said. We received Christ Jesus the Lord. Isn't that what the verse said? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So, uh, in a sense, uh, and I, I submit to that, I stand corrected by everyone here, I'm the, it's, you know, there is nothing to be said. It's very obvious what we receive. It's not a thing. That's why I ask you to excuse my language. What we receive is a person. However, here is the point I would like to, to make during the time that we have together this morning. There is a specific emphasis in this verse. We receive the Lord Jesus. However, there is a very specific emphasis that Paul is making in this verse as to in which character we receive this person. Okay? Actually, this emphasis is consistent with the whole New Testament. If you look, uh, I'll try to explain. I know it can be a little kind of abstract what I'm saying. Uh, bear with me for a second. In other words, if you look carefully the way the Lord Jesus is addressed in the epistles, right? Take it from Romans to Jude, the epistles in the New Testament. We can see that the Lord Jesus is addressed by a number of different titles, always referring to the same person. So sometimes you have the title Christ, referring to him. Sometimes he's referred by his personal name as he lived on earth, Jesus. Sometimes he's referred as Lord. Sometimes, very often, there is a combination of those words that go together. Okay? Uh, why I am saying, I'm, uh, of course I'm not mentioning the whole New Testament here. I'm just saying the epistles. And I'm being very specific because, of course, if you look back in the Gospels, there you have the story of this person, Jesus, that became the Christ. So there is no question that in the Gospels, the title, or the, the, the Lord, this person, Jesus Christ, is referred to by his personal name most of the times, Jesus Right? There is also mentions to him as Christ and Lord in the, in, in the Gospels, no question, and even Acts. But those are historical books. So they are trying to emphasize the story of this person. And therefore, Jesus is going to be the name that is used most often. But when you come to the epistles, then you have the emphasis switches from something historical. Now you have a description of what is our, our experience of the Lord Jesus. How do we experience this person? What is he to us today? And therefore, you have a switch in emphasis. And I have a little bit of stats here to try to kind of make this point. So if you count in the epistles, again, let's, now you know I am not considering the historical books in the New Testament. Let's just concentrate on the epistles. If you try to count how many times the word Christ is used, referring to the Lord Jesus, how many times he's addressed as Lord? Or how many times he's addressed as Jesus? Well, sometimes there is a combination of those words, right? I'm not saying exclusive mentions to him. That's, that was not the stat that I did this time. I just counted, okay, how many times he's referred as Christ, maybe in combination with any other of the two titles. Sometimes it's Christ Jesus, sometimes Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as in Colossians, you have the three titles right there. Christ, Jesus, the Lord, right? How many times is the Lord Jesus referred to by these three ty two titles and his name? And here are the stats. So if you count it, 
not surprisingly, the, the, his personal name, Jesus, is used 304 times in the epistle, right? Either by itself or most of the times in combination with one of the two titles. 304. How about Lord? It's used more than Jesus, the personal name. Which should tell us something about the emphasis of the New Testament. See, when Jesus was on earth, uh, he's still Jesus, of course. But after his death and resurrection, the emphasis now becomes much more in that he is Lord than just that he was a man that lived on earth. See that point? Therefore, the word Lord is referred to him 387 times. So keep those numbers. It's important to have a kind of uh, a, a comparison. 304 times his personal name Jesus is used. 387 you have the title Lord. And how about Christ? 501 times by my count on uh, not by one by one the version that I used the word Christ is used 501 times. I feel very strongly that right there we have an emphasis that we cannot afford to overlook. We cannot afford to just let that go by as if it's, well, you know, sometimes people are trying to use literary effect. You know, uh, they say that if you're a good writer, you're not going to repeat too much a certain word. So you're going to try to rotate words so you don't bore your readers. Well, but you know what? In the New Testament, the whole Bible actually is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everything is Word of God. Everything is directly inspired by Him. And I don't think that the Holy Spirit is trying to use a literary good style by human standards when He's given us the message in the Bible. There must be a reason why each word is used in each place and why certain words are used more often than others. And I feel that there is something very important that we need to learn from that. So the first thing I want to kind of suggest here is that there is a specific emphasis in the epistles, in the New Testament. When it comes to our experiencing the Lord Jesus, there is a very specific emphasis in the fact that he is the Christ. And not surprisingly, in our theme verse, you see that Paul uses the three terms. They're all there. But they're using a certain order. I feel that there is something very, very important in that fact. An, there is an emphasis there that should tell us what is the character, what is the nature of our receiving the Lord Jesus. Yes, we received this person, Jesus. We believed in him one day. But my question is, in which character do you believe in him? Do we believe in him like, uh, well, he was a wonderful teacher that taught love and righteousness and uh, you know, a bunch of good ethics? You know, I, I talked to a number of people. I have talked in my Christian during my, the time that I've been following the Lord. And a number of people that I talked to, they just talk, try to explain that Jesus, that's what he is. He's a wonderful teacher, a wonderful religious leader and master that taught wonderful ethics, you know, taught about love and about how to do good. And of course, you cannot say that that is completely wrong because, yes, Jesus, he taught about those things. There is no question about it. But is that the way we believe in the Lord Jesus? 
is that the way we received Christ Jesus the Lord, or this person, Jesus, as a good master? Of course, yesterday Maurice read that very important passage in Matthew chapter 16. You remember that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, he asked that question to his disciples. He said, okay, what do people say about me? And he got all sort of answers, right? Well, some people say you are, you know, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, another prophet. So people thought very highly of him. Because to, com- to be compared to Jeremiah is a big deal. Don't think that it's something small. It's like people saying, wow, this, this, this person, Jesus, he is a great prophet. That's not a small title. And however, after hearing all that, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, okay, I, I get that. How about you? What do you say I am? And of course, Peter has a revelation. It's not like, let me, let me phrase this correctly, because I'm giving the impression that it's something that starts in him. Like he had, like a lamp went on and it, it was his brain. No, he received a revelation. Something was given to him. Something clicked in his... A a, a light went on, but it wasn't his own kind of intellectual capacity that brought him to that conclusion. God the Father opened Peter's eyes to see, you are the Christ. That's what Jesus is. Yes, you are Jesus, of course. You are the Lord. But the first thing he says, you are the Christ. Well, brothers and sisters... That emphasis about the person of the Lord Jesus is consistent in the whole New Testament, especially the epistles, as we said. He is the Christ. And it's not a surprise to me, when we read this very important passage in Colossians, that Paul, when he refers, we are being rooted and built up in that person, the Lord Jesus. Right. But he is addressing him in a very specific way. And in that specific way, right there, There is something for us to learn. We are being rooted and built up in Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Uh, You know, uh, let me me just make a, a little parenthesis here. I want to consider this matter on being rooted in this person on the on the from the emphasis that this person is Christ. Okay? This is going to be most of this is most of my burden for this morning. Uh, and I want to use, more specifically, the imagery of being rooted more than being built up. I want to stick, so to, so to speak, to what is that image that is being presented to us in being rooted in the Lord Jesus as the Christ. Okay? So we want to see, this is a wonderful imagery that the Word of God is providing us. It's an imagery from a plant, from a tree. And the tree, when, as, as life grows... The roots will go deeper, will, will go deeper, right? And this is what we are being told that we need to do, to be rooted. As we grow in the Lord, we are going to deepen our roots in Him as the Christ. I want to consider this whole matter, especially focusing on the matter of being rooted in the Lord. Uh, and of course, I, I try to kind of understand a little more, you know, this matter of being rooted, uh, uh, I have been out of school for, you know, <laughs> for longer than I can care. So those basic and very important experiments that we make in, in, li- in, in you know, early in school, like the, remember the bean? I'm sure everybody made that experiment as part of an assignment, right? Get the little bean 
and put it in either in a piece of cotton, right, or uh, uh, and and see how what happens when you put some water in it. Uh, give it one or two days and look what happens. And I asked my dear wife Priscilla, hey, can you help me in doing this experiment? And she did it much better than I thought. You know, I, I was thinking in the cotton, right, a piece of cotton and putting some water, and I wouldn't see exactly what is going on there. But she put it in a glass and she put some paper covering the glass and dropped a bunch of beans and started watering this. And, and we started watching for a couple of days, okay, what is going to happen with this bean as it gets some water, right? And surely enough, not surprisingly, something started to, you know, to sprout. What's the word for that? Sprout. Okay, it, something came alive. But the first thing that came wasn't as I, I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, the, the shoot is going to go up first. Not quite. The first thing that started kind of getting out of it is what became the root. In the beginning, you cannot tell, other than it's, you know, it's sort of pointing down, right? But somehow, the first thing that's, that appears in that life is a little root. And after a couple of extra days, you have a shoot going up. And that was up to me like, wow, this is really interesting. Because in this imagery of being rooted, one of the things that kind of clicked to me is that root somehow speaks of the, of the beginning, of the very first thing that happens in our lives. Of course, Paul's emphasis here is, is a bit different. He's saying that as we grow, we have to be rooted. In other words, the roots are going to be strengthened and be you know, even deeper, right? But also in that image, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. There is the idea that the root is the, I don't want to say the source of life, because it's obviously that's not the right word. But somehow is related to the beginning of the life of life process, right? So to speak. And excuse my poor language here. So that is part of what is involved here. Root has to do with the very beginning, the essence. And we ought to be rooted as we received Him. That definitely speaks of the beginning of our experience of the Lord Jesus. That's the way we are going to grow in Him. And more specifically, the, the nature in which we received him is going to be the nature in which we grow. My main point this morning that I'm going to try to make is this. We receive the Lord Jesus. We believe in him as Christ. That is the revelation that the Lord gave Peter. You are the Christ. The first thing. The son of the living God. At the end of the Gospel of John, you have a very similar statement. John is saying, he's given us the reason why he wrote the gospel. And he says, well, Jesus did a number of things that I didn't put in this book. But the things that go in this book, they have one purpose. That you might, may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is the nature of our believing in him. That is the nature of our receiving him. We receive him as a Christ. Uh, okay. And again, I, I'm sure that this is pretty abstract. And I, I would just ask you to bear a little bit with me. We want, by the grace of the Lord, try to go into these things. But keep that as a fact in mind. That is the nature of our receiving Christ, uh, of our receiving Jesus, right? As the Christ. Uh, since we mentioned that this imagery of the root, of root being rooted in Him, has something to do with the beginning of our experience of Him. The book that came to my heart was, of course, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is very concerned, as we just stated now, at the end of the book, 
tells us what is the, the, the goal of that book. And the goal is that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, that we may believe in him and then have life in his name. But John, at the same time, it seems that throughout the book, he's very concerned, he has this burden, if I may use it that way, when he wrote it. He wanted somehow to tell people, the people that he was writing to, what is the character of this person that they had believed in. It's very interesting that the Gospel of John is probably one of the, la the, the last writings in the whole New Testament. Some people believe that it was written even after, the, after Revelation. Uh, so that would be the very last thing written. Probably at the same time with John's, the same author, John's epistles, right? But it's interesting for this reason. At that time, that was probably the end of the first century, A.D. 95, some you know, scholars would say, at the very end of that first century. By that time, all the other Gospels were written already. All the epistles were already written. Revelation probably was already written. So John, the Gospel of John, is the very last thing that is written in the New Testament. And here is something very interesting. People knew very well the story of Jesus. If the, if the Gospel of John is the last epistle, the three other, uh, sorry, is the last Gospel, the other three Gospels, you know, were already there in circulation, and people knew the story of Jesus. But John is burdened somehow to tell people something beyond the story of Jesus. He somehow wants people to know what is the interpretation, what is the meaning of those stories. What is, the, what is this person all about, the Lord Jesus? And that's the sort of his burden. And, and it's, to me it's very wonderful the way he begins the, the gospel. He begins saying, in the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, and the Word is God, or was God. Uh, in that statement, I just want to point out one thing that to me is very important for us to consider, to understand, okay, what is, what is this receiving of the Lord Jesus? In which nature, in which character do we receive it? There is one book in the Bible, one other book except John, that begins in the same way. Uh, thank you very much. The book of Genesis. Those are the two books that begin the same way. And that is very, very meaningful. Because somehow... The way I feel is that the Holy Spirit, right here, is trying to, call, to catch our attention. When the Gospel of John begins, when it begins the same way the book of Genesis does, immediately you say, mm, wait a second, there must be some correlation here, right? In the beginning God created heavens and earth, the book of Genesis. But now in the beginning was the Word. What is, what is the point? And I would like to submit to you this. Somehow, the Holy Spirit, is, which inspired both books, is, is the Word of God. Somehow, he's establishing a connection between the story in Genesis and what is going on in John. From the beginning, what, what, what happened at the very beginning of Genesis, there is some correlation. And all of this is very important for us to understand, okay, what did we receive? That is what we're trying to get at. What did we receive? How are we going to grow in this that we have received? So we will try to look at these things for a little bit. 
I know we are kind of, most of us, I'm sure we are very familiar with the story in the book of Genesis. And however, I, I really feel we need to kind of remind ourselves, since there is this correlation, since I feel that the Holy Spirit is making this point of connection between the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis, why there is such a correlation? Well, to put it, try to put it very simply, the, it's, it's like trying to make the long story short. In the book of Genesis, we have the story of how God is seeking to have a being among all creation with whom he could have fellowship. It's not a kind of celestial being. The angels were already, you know, we don't have the story of how angels were created in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is like describing what happened in the physical world when God created, therefore it begins, in the beginning God created uh, the heavens and the earth. Uh, but probably before that, or, or sometime after that, you know, I, I, won't be so, uh, I, I won't venture in that territory, God already had created angels. But somehow Genesis is not concerned about that. Genesis is going to tell us the story of, okay, okay God made a physical universe. And the wonderful thing, as we look to that story, and I try to make the long story short, is that among all things that were created, all the wonderful and glorious things created, you have the moon, the sun, the stars, the earth. All things that are really full of majesty. They are, uh, as science knows now, is they are much more kind of complex and marvelous than we ever thought, you know, a hundred years ago or, you know, let alone uh, longer after that. All those things are very glorious, very wonderful. And however, when you read Genesis chapter 1, it's very clear that God was seeking something much more important than just making you know, a wonderful physical universe. He wanted one being that he could commune with, that he could have a personal relationship with, and that is you and me. That is creation of man. And therefore, God said, let us make man according to our image. Right? In other words, when, when we were created, we were created with some correspondence to God. Now think about this. In all physical creation, no other being had that capacity. Birds, dogs, you know, wonderful creatures, right? There's some of them, you know, smarter than others. You know, the whales, incredibly smart. Dolphins, you know, a chimpanzee, you know, pretty, pretty smart people. But however, with all the, they can, and you know, we shouldn't discount that, okay, they are just limited beings, and, and they are in a sense, but they are capable of thinking. They're capable of having emotions, you know. You ever had a dog? They have their mood, right? And they have, sometimes they, you can tell that mm, the guy is a little sad. And they have different personalities. Some animals are more kind of um, introspective. <laughs> we, we could use that term. Others are more outgoing. They have those little different traits. And however, the main difference with human beings is none of that, of course. We, we also have all those aspects, right? We, we can think, we can feel, we have a will, as they also have in a limited way. We have all those things. But the real difference, what really makes a difference, is that human beings were created with something that no other being had, no other being on this, on this earth, which is a correspondence to God, a capacity of having fellowship with God. See, a bird, a dog, a they, they, 
That's it. It's not in their constitution. Why is that man had that capacity? For a very simple reason. If you read carefully the story in Genesis, and we are not going through the details, I'll just state it for you. If you read carefully, you see that man was created with three parts. We already mentioned some of them. We were created with a body. We were created with a soul, which has the capacity of all those things that animals already have. Thinking, feeling, having a will. All that goes in our soul. So you have a body, a soul, and then you have a spirit. And that is the unique part in human beings. It's the spirit that gives us that correspondence to God that no other being has. And therefore, the Lord Jesus, when he was speaking to, that, to the Samaritan woman, he said, God is, remember, God is spirit. And therefore, he who worships God must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see that to be able to worship God, to commune with God, there must be a correspondence. And that's a wonderful thing in the story of Genesis. We were created originally with such correspondence, with an organ, let me call it that way, an organ called the spirit, something that would give us that capacity of communing with God. And at the same time, in Genesis, very soon we see the tragedy that happens. At the very, very beginning, in chapter 3, in that story, you see that man, unfortunately, he decided to go his way in independence to God. And man turned his back to God. And as a result of that, his spirit died. You remember what the Lord told him. He said, well, you, shouldn't, you shall not take of the fruit of the... There was a, a tree there, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You should not take of that. Because the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. And surely that happened in that very moment. In Genesis chapter 3, when man decided to go his own way... He died. He didn't die physically. We know from the story, right? He took the fruit and then he talked to God and then he lived many other years and had children, all that. He didn't die even, you know, mentally. He continued to be able to think. But the tragedy is that his communication to God was interrupted in that very moment. His spirit died. The reason I'm making this point, which is a very familiar story, I'm sure that most of you know it so well. But I think it's very important to bring it back very, very clearly because of the way the Gospel of John begins. The Gospel of John somehow, it, it almost gives us the impression that there is a new beginning that God is going to make. In Genesis you have, in the beginning God created heavens and earth. And that creation, when you read the story, includes us. Unfortunately, the first creation, the story that we read in Genesis, is a story that is somehow is full of shame. It's full of defeat because of the fall of man. And then when we get to the Gospel of John, we get the impression, ah, wait a second. God is going to have a second beginning now. It's a fresh beginning. Even as Dana mentioned yesterday, God is going to make this thing right He's going to restore something that got lost in that first creation. And that's the beginning of the very opening of the Gospel of John. I cannot help but feel that right there you have like a key to understand what the whole Gospel is going to present. All right, so, but yet, 
My point here is that the Gospel of John is going to try to present to us, to explain to us, what is the nature of that person that we have received. It's almost as if John wants us to go beyond the story, which all the other Gospels already had written many years before that. And he wants us to understand, oh, but wait a second. There is a nature. There is something in this person. And he wants us, he wants us to make sure, he wants to be sure that we understand what's the nature of this person. And this is related, of course, to what Paul is saying in Colossians. We need to understand and be clear of the way we have received the Lord. Because that is the way we are going to grow in. Let's read again a verse in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. I want to go back to John's, John the Baptist he has a testimony about Jesus. Now, before I read the verses again, let me just point out this point, this fact. The testimony of John the Baptist, in a sense, is the opening of the story in the Gospel of John. Uh, and and let, me, let me clarify what I mean. The Gospel of John begins with something that resembles a preface. You know, if you would put it in modern terminology. He has a couple of verses at the beginning when John himself is somehow making a reflection about the Lord Jesus. You know, in the beginning was the Word and he goes and describes something about this, this person. It is only a couple of verses later that the story properly will begin. And the first thing that happens in this story, the opening of the story, not the preface, is a testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. Of course, the whole book is about the Lord Jesus. But I feel that is very meaningful. That there is something that is key for the rest of the gospel right there. That opening, that first testimony of John the Baptist about the Lord Jesus contains in itself the nature most of the, the mission of the Lord Jesus, his essential nature, and how it relates to us. So let's, having this in mind, let's read again the verses that we read at the beginning. In verse, chapter 1, Gospel of John, verse 32. So this is the opening testimony of John the Baptist. Well, actually, he said something else about the Lord, a couple of verses, but it's still in the sense of a testimony. And here is where he's kind of adding his testimony to. In verse 32, he says, And John, this is John the Baptist, bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he, the Spirit, remained upon him, the Lord Jesus. This is the first thing that John says in his testimony about the Lord Jesus. Or is the, is the opening of the whole book. So, who is this person, Jesus Christ, that is being presented in this gospel? The first thing John, once, once he's writing this, he's compiling this book, he wants to make clear is that the readers understand this person is the one upon whom the Spirit descended. The Spirit, not only, the, and that's the Holy Spirit, 
the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon him and remained upon him. Now think for a second. What a contrast with the book of Genesis. What happened in the book of Genesis? Man was created to have fellowship with God. Man was given an organ, which is the spirit, the human spirit. Through that organ, we were capable of having fellowship with God. And very soon after we were created, our spirit died. The communication with God, gone. In a sense, the book of Genesis presents the story of a humanity that has a closed heaven for them. Because we were created to have fellowship with God, but we despised that capacity. And that is the choice of Adam and Eve, but don't fool yourself. I'll try not to do the same for myself. Let us not think, well, that was their choice. I have nothing to do with that. Oh, really? It is that our nature? You know, it's a wonderful thing to have sons and to watch them so early in their life because it's so evident that we are born with a sort of tendency to go the wrong way. It's amazing, you know. I have a three-year-old and I don't need to teach him, you know, to lie or to be kind of sneaky or to disobey. It's part of the package, you know. It comes, that's it. Just give it a little bit of time. That is my nature as a fallen human being. That is our nature. So we, should we, never, we should never say, well, you know what? The fall of man, that's Adam and Eve's problem. I'm wonderful. I, I have nothing to do with that. Oh, really? <laughs> we need just to look at, our, as someone said, look at your, at your belly and see you have a belly button. And that reminds me, oh, wait a second. I come from my mom and she comes from her mom. Ba, 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 ba. That's Adam and Eve. That's it. See the connection? And, and, and in a sense... The implication is very clear. What happened to Adam and Eve is what happens to all of us in the spiritual realm. What happened to Adam and Eve? The Lord said, you shall not eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat, you will die. They ate it. What happened? They died. They died spiritually. Right? What happens to us? We are born in this world in exactly the same state as fallen Adam and Eve. We have a body. We have a soul. We have a capacity to think, to feel, all that. How about the spirit? Is that. You see, that is the first beginning of the book of Genesis. But now in the Gospel of John, there is a new beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And in that new beginning, the first thing that John is trying to impress upon us is this. This man, Jesus Christ, he is the one upon whom the Holy Spirit came and remained upon him. Do you see how wonderful this is? This is unique in history. See, in the Old Testament, we have instances when the Holy Spirit would come down upon someone and empower someone to do something. But you know what happened? Soon after the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon that person, he would retreat and go back. So in the Old, the fact that the Holy Spirit came down is not necessarily unique. That's not the point. But there is one little word there that is unique in history about the Lord Jesus. John says, I saw the Spirit coming down upon Him and remaining upon Him. That is the nature of this man that is being presented to us in the Gospels. 
He is the man that not only received the Spirit temporarily, no. The Spirit came down and could remain upon Him. And it's no wonder, we didn't read this verse, but later in the Gospel, there is a statement about the Lord Jesus. He is the one that has the Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit is, is in Him in, with no hindrance. He is a man full of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when you look at His ministry, when you look at his life, as we have in, either the, in, in, in any gospel, synoptics, John, look at his life, full of life, full of something living, of a fellowship with his Father. Everything he says, truth. Everything he does expresses the very nature of God. You see, this is the person that the gospel is trying to, to present to us. However, that's not the whole story. If you continue to read the testimony of, of John, there is something that is even more amazing than that. Uh, let's read verse 33. John the Baptist continues to say, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize, and that is God the Father, he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This is this person that we believe in. He is the one upon whom the Holy Spirit came down and remained. And you know, the word Christ, as Maurice already said yesterday, has a very simple meaning in Greek. The word Christ means the anointed. The one upon whom the Holy Spirit would come down and remain. There is another word that you may hear is, is the, the Hebrew word for, for Christ, which is Messiah. It's all the same word. One is in Hebrew, the other one Greek. But the meaning of that word, Messiah or Christ, is one. The anointed one. You see who the Lord Jesus is. He is the one, full of the Holy Spirit. But even more amazing, He is the one that can introduce you and me into that realm of the Spirit. Now you have something that is, it should be a big contrast with the book of Genesis. You see what happened in Genesis? In Genesis, we, had, we have exactly the opposite. In Genesis, we were created with the Spirit, with the capacity to fellowship with God, and we said, no, I'm not interested. That's it. I can live in my body. I can live in my soul. That's good enough. That's in essence what taking of the fruit of that tree, of knowledge, of good and evil. That's, that's the implication. It's like Adam and Eve said, they said, you know what, we can know things ourselves. That's, that's good enough. We can live by our, our, our thoughts. We can live by our emotion. That's what the tree of, see, of knowledge, of good and evil, knowledge, that has to do with your mind, right, with your soul. That is the choice that is being made back then. And that choice resulted in spiritual death. And now the Lord Jesus, He's doing exactly the opposite. He's the one upon whom the Spirit came and remained. And He can baptize you in the Holy Spirit. We need to explain one more thing. This word baptize, baptism, that's another Greek word. That Actually, it was, uh, uh, it's, it's what they, the, the people call a transliteration, right? When the word is not translated. Because in Greek it's baptismos, right? So they got that word and they just made it sound like English, baptism. But the real meaning of that word, baptism, is 
to plunge someone. It's the idea of when someone is being baptized in a river or you know, in a pool. Is you get that person and you bloop, dip that person into the water. You're immersed, plunged. And that's what the Lord Jesus came to do to me and to you. We, by nature, that are, we don't belong to that realm. We have a dead spirit by nature. But oh, what a grace that he comes as the anointed, as, as the Christ. And he's baptizing you and me in the Holy Spirit. He's introducing us into that realm that is not ours. Brothers and sisters, here is my point. How did we receive this person, Jesus? We received him as the Christ. We received him as the one that is the anointed one. We received him as the one that baptizes us, that introduces us, that plunges us into that realm that would be close for us forever. It's very wonderful to me the way chapter 1 of John ends. Because the Lord Jesus is talking to, to Nathaniel. And you remember, well, we don't want to go into the story. But the Lord Jesus makes a point that is, is so wonderful. He says, remember what happened? Uh, the Lord Jesus made a statement about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, you know, he was a, a bit kind of, eh, I don't know, you, how do you know that I was sitting, you know, that I was, that I am a true Israelite? The Lord Jesus said, you're a true Israelite, right? And Nathaniel, I don't know you, how come you're saying this? It was a, a bit hostile in his first interaction with Jesus. And Jesus said, well, before you even, you know, before you even met me, I saw you under the fig tree. And of course, that was a, a, a knowledge that transcends natural knowledge. And Nathaniel was so impressed about that. And he said, Master, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And the Lord Jesus said to him, You know what? You're, you believe just because I said that? You're going to see greater things than just this knowledge that I have about you. Here's the greatest thing that you're going to see. You're going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And I think there is a wonderful, very beautiful picture there. In Genesis, the first beginning, the story ends with a closed heaven because of my sin and your sin. By nature, heavens would be eternally close to us. And yet, when the Lord Jesus, when the Messiah comes, He's not only personally full with the Holy Spirit, but He's the one that introduces us, that plunges us in that realm. And because of that, heavens can be opened again. Do you see what a wonderful grace? It's no surprise that John, he makes an exclamation. We, we didn't read this verse, but I want to read it. Still in, in, verse, in chapter 1. In the beginning of the book, it's part of the preface, actually, of the book. And in verse 16, John, the, the evangelist, he says, For of his fullness, the fullness of the Lord Jesus, we have all received and grace upon grace. How can we describe that? How can we describe that lost sinners, rebels, disconnected to God, without capacity of having fellowship, of seeing God, how can we describe that now we are given such a salvation 
that plunges us into the realm of the Holy Spirit, that makes that connection a reality again, grace upon grace. And this is the person that we have received, brothers and sisters, the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do we receive the Lord Jesus? Or when is the moment that we receive the Lord Jesus? Well, this happens by birth. This is exactly the reversing of what happened in the fall of man. Man, when he fell, he died spiritually. But in salvation, we are caused to born again. And what is born is actually that that spirit that we had, somehow that is regenerated, is brought to life again. And there you go, you have a new life. A new connection to God that, that was never there in the first place. But now we are brought to life. And that is the conversation of the Lord Jesus with Nicodemus. But did you realize, how does that new birth happen? What is the nature of that new birth? Is that a kind of a mental thing? Is that that you thought a lot about Jesus and said, no, you know what, I think it makes sense, I'll believe in him. That's not exactly what the Lord said to Nicodemus. New birth can only happen by the Holy Spirit. He who is born of flesh is flesh, but he who is born of the Spirit, that is new birth. You see how we begin, how we receive Christ? is by new birth, and that is a spiritual birth. It's a, it's a birth that is caused, or it's, it's only made possible because the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, he died on the cross. And actually, that's part of the... When, when the Lord is talking to Nicodemus, that's the way this conversation concludes. When Nicodemus, finally, he was so amazed with that whole thing. He said, what? I can be born again? He asked the question, right? He asked, how can these things be? In other words, how can I be born again? Because the Lord said, if you're not born again, that's it. You know, the kingdom is closed. Nothing will... That's it. Spiritual things are close to you. And Nicodemus asked him, how can these things be? And what a wonderful answer. Because it's a long answer. But when you get to the core of the answer, here is the answer. We can be born again because Messiah, because the Christ, he died on the cross for us. You see, it's in that conversation, in that answer to, of the Lord Jesus with Nicodemus, he makes that allusion to the serpent back in the desert. Remember when the children of Israel, they were being bitten by those serpents and were dying, which is just a, a picture of our sin. Then the Lord made a provision. He said, you're going to make the, bro the bre uh, brazen? A bronze serpent. Thank you. A brazen serpent. And whoever looks at him will be saved. See, just a picture of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. When he died on the cross, he made the new birth become a possibility for anyone that believes in him. He's somehow reversing what happened in Genesis. It's very amazing to me that in Genesis you have a tree of life. Remember that uh, at the very beginning, God put two special trees in the garden. One is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the other one is the, is the tree of life. And each one points to one special area of our lives. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, of course, has to do with somehow with our soul. Knowledge, right? How about the tree of life? To which part is that related? It's definitely not the body. 
is not the soul. So it has to be food for our spirits. And the Lord never said to Adam, you should not eat the tree of life. No, it's actually the opposite. It's almost there, there is a hint that Adam should pick the tree of life. When he's, if he had chosen to get the tree of life, that would represent that he would be chosen to live by his relationship to God. It's food for his spirit. It would be the, the, the choice of, okay, I want to live by my spirit, not by my soul. Unfortunately, he made the wrong decision. But it's interesting. After he, he ate, the tree of life was forbidden to him. You remember that the Lord put some cherubims to protect that tree of life? And he said, okay, he's not going to eat of it anymore. The wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, to me, is that in the Gospel of John, we see that the tree of life becomes available once again. However, it's, it comes to us in a bit of a different form. The way we receive this tree of life now is through the Lord Jesus, of course, but it's in a different tree. When the Lord Jesus died, he dies, of course, on a tree. You know that the cross is nothing more than a tree. A tree that was, uh, when they, uh, uh, let me explain it this way. When they carried the cross, they were actually carrying just the one beam of that cross. Because actually, in, in the place that the, uh, someone was going to be crucified, there was already a tree there. The vertical part was a tree, right? And the person that carried the cross was carrying just the horizontal part that was attached right there in the moment of crucifixion. Therefore, in the New Testament, we find that expression, that Jesus suffered on the tree. Hmm, the tree. What is that? I feel that somehow we have a reminder there. Today, the tree of life became available to each one of us. But it comes in a different form. It's not like the tree of life that was there in the garden. The tree of life now becomes the cross of the Lord Jesus. Because He died there, that life that can nourish our spirits is available once again. Uh, we won't have the time to go into the details of this. But we read many passages in John. And I didn't have the intention to go in detail on each one of them. But I just wanted to give you a sample or a taste. What is the emphasis in this Gospel of John? What is that, that specific thing that John, the Gospel writer, is trying to present to his readers? And I want to submit this to you. The, whole, the, the, the big emphasis of this Gospel is the fact that Jesus is the Christ. That He is the Anointed One. And that the anointed, he died on the cross, that we may receive that same life that he has. You see, how do we receive the Lord Jesus? In which nature, in which character? We receive him as the one that is the Christ. As the one that is full of the Spirit. And we have the same privilege of having exactly that life. The life in the realm of the Spirit. How are we to grow in Christian life? In that exact same nature. A life in the Spirit. Uh, and because we don't have the time to go into this, I just want to kind of maybe pick one or, one or two points to try to clarify this. At the same time, I feel that this whole thing is related to the matter of being rooted in Christ. Right? I want to go a little bit into that picture that we have in Roots. 
We read one verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which makes what I feel it's a very important connection, or a, a very important part of the imagery here is presented to, our, to us there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you can turn there again, I, I want to read it to make this point. First Corinthians chapter two. We are going to read the, the last part of verse ten. It says, For the Spirit, and is referring to God's Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. You see the association here. The Spirit somehow is associated with the idea of something deep, of something that searches, you know, to the very depths of, of even God. That is the Holy Spirit. In other parts of the, of the New Testament, we have an association that is very similar, another idea that is somehow in the same lines, that I feel that is important for, for us to consider. We are not going to read those verses, but the human spirit is associated with the idea of the deepest or the most inner part of our being. So sometimes, Paul will say, we'll refer to the human spirit as the inner man. You remember that? As opposed to the outer man. And if you want to take a look at that, you can look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. We cannot read it because of time. But there you have the contrast. There you have an outer man that is something that is in decaying, is something that is temporary, an outer man in the Bible refers, of course, first to your physical body, but also to the realm of your thought, of your emotion, of your soul. That is all kind of in that same bundle of the outer man. And in, up, in contrast to that, you have the inner man. Mm, what is the inner man in the Bible? Mm, from other passages, we cannot read them, but maybe I'll point you to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Right? You have... The inner man being strengthened by the Holy Spirit. The inner man is that innermost part of our beings, which is the realm where the Holy Spirit can interact with us, which is essentially the human spirit. And therefore, I just want to impress you with this point. The human spirit, or the spiritual realm in the Bible, is somehow related to something that is the innermost part of our being, or the deepest part of our being. And that is very important to me. I feel that somehow, when we have this image of that we need to be rooted in Christ, we have, I think we need to put the pieces together of this image, right? On the one hand, being rooted in Christ points to the way we received Him. He is the Christ. We have to grow in Him in that nature, in that relationship. He is the Anointed One. We are to live in the same way by the Spirit, even as He lived by the Spirit. But then there is another part of the picture here. You see that being rooted implies that it's something that is going deeper. It's not just in the surface, you see. It's something that goes beyond the surface. And that is what really matters. And that idea is still the same part of the picture. The deepest part of our being is not our mind, is not our emotion, is not our body, of course. 
the deepest part of our being is our spirit. And to be rooted in Christ implies somehow that we are going to go deeper and deeper in our life. And that means that we ought to live not just by, you know, the world of senses that our body is aware of, not even the world of our thoughts that is a little bit deeper than the world of senses, right? But that's not the deepest part of our being. The deepest part is the human spirit. And that is the, should be where we are going to live. And because of that, we read the passage, still in John, chapter 4. And we have a wonderful conversation. And part of the picture that I want to present to you. You remember the Lord was talking to the Samaritan woman. And in that conversation, uh, somehow the Lord starts the conversation and asks for water. And of course, at the end of the day, the Lord is much more interested of giving that woman something than of receiving some physical water or something like that. But the Lord uses that whole conversation and that image to make very, very important points that has, have to do with this whole, this whole idea. So the woman says, but Lord... Uh, how can you, you know, remember she was shocked first that he was asking her for that water because she was a woman that was kind of unusual, a man addressing a woman. And then, even worse, she was from a place, you know, she was from Samaria. And the Lord Jesus is a Jew. And Samaritans and Jews, you know, they detested each other. They really didn't like each other. So she goes, how come? You're a Jew and you're asking me? You know, I'm Samaritan and I'm a woman. Why are you asking me this? And the Lord says, well, you know, if you knew who I am, you would ask me and I will give you the living water. And then she makes a very interesting point. She says, but Lord, she was thinking in terms of that physical water. And she says, but Lord, this, the well is very deep and you don't have anything to draw from this well. And I believe there is, there is something for our instruction right there. In the imagery of the Bible, very often the Holy Spirit is presented as living water. Now, this is the verse we read in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the Lord says, whoever believes in me, from his innermost being, there will be that living water gushing. And then John explains, and he was saying that about the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit in, in this imagery is that living water from our innermost being. But in the picture there, in the conversation with that woman, here is the picture. You have a well, but it's something very deep. Right? And the well, in a sense, represents like the human spirit, which is what contains, it's supposed to contain the water. That woman is like a well that was empty. She had five husbands. She was not satisfied. That is the picture of what each one of us are in Adam. Empty wells. We were supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit, but by nature, we are empty in ourselves. And yet... The Lord Jesus is saying, here's the thing, if you believe in me, there will be this living water from your innermost being. But their innermost being is like, the picture is, is something that is going down the well, in the bottom of the well, in the deepest part of your being. There you have the living water. See, this is the way, brothers and sisters, this is to me like a, a, something pointing to what is the nature of what we receive? Well, we receive the wonderful life of Christ. And that life is the life in the Holy Spirit. We are going to find that life, not in the surface, not in our thoughts, not in our emotions. That life is to be found in the deepest part of our beings, and that is our spirits.
Uh, I'll probably just close with mentioning something practical. I'm always afraid that when we mention this thing of living in the Spirit, uh, or or the life that we have in Christ, the impression sometimes that we may be left is that it's something very theoretical or something very doctrinal, right? Oh, okay, I have this, but how how does this apply in my daily walk, you know? Or it's something very spooky, right? No, spiritual life. It's something that a couple of people, special ones have. And because of that, somehow I felt that we need to go through a couple of practical hints that we have in Colossians chapter 2, in the two verses that are our theme verse, that are kind of pointers of what are marks of that life rooted in Christ, of the spiritual life. If anything remains on your mind this morning, or from this sharing, I would like it to be this. This life in the Spirit is your portion and my portion. This is not something for a couple of special people, you know, spiritual people, right? Oh, those spiritual giants in the church. Those are spiritual. But, you know, who am I? You know, I'm a regular guy. I go to, I believe in the Lord, but I, you know, I am not that privileged or special to even aspire to or think that I can have that life. Brothers and sisters, this is not the case. This life is the portion of everyone who believes in the Lord. He died on the cross that that could become a reality for you and for me. He died on the cross that we may receive His Spirit and live in that Spirit. So that said, what are some practical aspects of our walking, of our living in the Spirit, as we can see in Colossians chapter 2? Let's, let's close by looking at some, really briefly, at something that is very practical about this life in the Spirit, as we can see in Colossians 2. The first thing I want to say is not is implied in the text. When we believe in the Lord Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. And right there, there is something very, very important. The Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. You get that? It's a holy... You know when we, when we mention certain names, we, we lose the meaning that the name itself carries in it. And the first thing that should be clear in us in this practical implication of our walk with the Lord is that the, the spirit that we received when we believed in the Lord is a holy spirit. And right there, we need to have something clear. That means that the, by the grace of the Lord, Anything that is sinful, anything that is opposite to his nature, has to go. And you know, by nature, all of us, we have those things. We have sinful things in our lives. We have things that are everything in us when we come to the Lord is the opposite of what he is. So what I'm saying here is not that, oh, the Lord now expects of you perfection without sin. That's not the point. But here is the point. As we grow in the Lord, as we walk in the way we have received Him. The Lord is going to work in you and in me to deliver us from everything that is opposite to His nature. Anything that is sinful will have to go. And this is something very practical. To me it says that 
whenever, I re- whenever the Lord Jesus or the Holy Spirit points something, oops, how about this in your life? You know when he points his finger? We have two options here. We can either pretend that we are not hearing and go ahead and continue in a way that is not his, or we can listen to him. But the only way to grow in him is when we listen. And that implies that anything that is not according to his, to his nature, that is not holy, will have to go. And the wonderful thing, there is grace for us for those things to, to go. And even better, whenever we, are, we realize, oops, I messed up, I'm doing something, you know, I, I sinned, I stumbled in something that is not of him. Oh, there is grace to restore us. There is a grace that when we confess our sins, forgives us. And we can continue our walk. That's the first thing I want to leave with you in this practical aspect. The Holy Spirit in us is a Holy Spirit. Now in the text itself, uh, if you turn to verse 7, let's read again 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I want to just underline this, just as you were instructed. So this is part of our walk, right? We are walking in the same way we received. So we are walking as we were instructed. So if you go a little ahead, still in Colossians, in verse 16, I want just to make that, uh, uh, that point. Uh, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and in some translations, and instructing one another with psalms and hymns, etc., etc. In other words, our initial instruction always comes from the word of the Lord. And the way we are going to grow in the Lord, the way we are going to develop the spiritual walk is exactly the same. It has to do with the word of the Lord. You know, it's clear in the Bible that the Holy Spirit, He has a kind of instrument to work in our lives, which is the sword of the Spirit. Remember that expression? Mm. Yeah, what is that? The sword of the Spirit. Isn't that the Word of God? See that if we are going to grow spiritually, we need to be somehow, the word of the Lord has to abundantly abide in us. I just leave a stat with you really quick that blew my mind away. You know how much water, uh, I'm mentioning water because in the imagery of the Bible, sometimes water points to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it points to the word of God, right? And no... No wonder why is this, you know, the sword of the Spirit is... There is a connection between the Holy Spirit and, 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 and the Word of God. But, you know, if you think in the Word of God as water, and go back to the plant, you know how much water a single plant of tomato has to take to... Uh, sorry, it's, it's a potato, it's not a tomato. How much water a potato... I don't know, maybe the tomato is similar, but let's stick to the, the real thing. You know how much water a potato has to take one plant to develop fully, it's 600 pounds of water is going to be absorbed by a, by a single plant of potato that it may reach maturity. If you think that the Word of God is that water that cleanses us, that is purifying us, well, you see what Paul means when he says, let the Word of Christ abide in you richly. We need to be not just a casual 
have a casual acquaintance with the Word, if we are going to grow in Him, if we are going to grow in the spiritual way that we were called, that is our privilege and portion, the Word of the Lord has to abide richly in us. So that's the second practical thing. The third thing that I want to, to mention here, a life of communion with the Lord. And, and let's go back to chapter 2 and read this a little expression that I believe underlines this practical aspect of our spiritual walk with Him. At the end of verse 7, it says, let's read the whole verse, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and establishing your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude in other verses, with, in other versions, with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving, as we know, is just one of the aspects of prayer. It's one of the many forms that prayer has in the Bible. So prayer somehow is a petition. Prayer somehow it sometimes is in the form of, uh, of giving thanks to the Lord, sometimes in, in the form of intercession and so on. But the principle I want to impress with you is that this life, this spiritual life, spiritual walk we are called to, somehow has to be cultivated in the form of communion with God, in the form of prayer. The way that Paul is putting here is the thanksgiving aspect. But of course, we need all forms of prayer. Yes, thanksgiving included, but all forms of prayer to be walking in this spiritual life. So that's another, the third practical aspect I'll, I'll leave with you. Another one is this, going back to the title of the Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord. If we are going to grow in Him, we need Him not only as Christ, we need Him as Lord. And you know that the Holy Spirit, He was given to us. Part of what He's doing is making sure that the Lordship of Christ is a reality in our lives. And because of that, he often, very often, He will going to say, okay, what about this in your life? What about that? Right? And we have again two options here. We can obey and listen or not. It's amazing how Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Lord, Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. You see that the Holy Spirit is somehow trying to work in that direction of making that Lordship a reality. That means that often He's going to speak to us. He's going to direct us. And we have two choices again. We can listen or pretend that we are not listening. And growth only comes as we obey, as we listen to that anointing that is inside us. All right? And the final thing that I want to leave with you, the, the fifth essential point of this walking in a practical way, as, as I see here in this verse, is faith. And again, we're reading again verse 7, having been firmly rooted and now been built up in Him, established in your faith. Of course, Spiritual walk is, above all, a walk of faith. If, if you make that contrast, living by the soul means that you're going to be living by your senses, by your understanding, by anything except faith. And living in the, by the Spirit is not, that you, is not that the soul is not there. That's not the point. But the soul is not going to be the central point of our lives. And that requires that we trust the Lord. The only way that walk can happen is when we somehow we, are, we set aside what we see, what we know, and trust Him. And that is a life 
of faith. So I hope this little sample gives you uh, uh, these five practical points can somehow help in correcting a misunderstanding that, well, you know, spiritual life is something very spooky, very kind of abstract. In a sense, the Lord has given us very clear path, a very clear instruction on how can we walk in this spiritual life. And it's our responsibility to listen to Him, to, be, to walk softly and, and to somehow pay attention to this. So uh, why don't we have a word of prayer and we can uh, uh, dismiss to our uh, well. Lord, we thank you as we consider that, Lord, your wonderful grace in not only saving us, Lord, not only forgiving our sins, but you have, Lord, given us your own Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you thanks for such a grace that was given to us. We give you thanks, Lord, for such privilege that we have received. And, and our prayer, Lord, is that as we consider this matter of being rooted in you, of growing in you in the same character and nature of what we have received in the beginning, we pray, Lord, that you would make this clear to each one of us, Lord. We pray that if this word is somehow abstract or somehow uh, there are areas that are not fully, Lord, explained, we pray that your Holy Spirit can translate and can even lead us, Lord, into seeing what a wonderful portion was given to us in your salvation. And our desire is not only having this as an, an, a mental understanding, but we pray that you would cause us to be rooted, to grow deeper in the Lord, to walk the spiritual life that you have provided at such a cost for us. So we commit this into your hands and we trust that, Lord, Whatever is, is of you, whatever you see fit, you can use, Lord, for our encouragement, for our following you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.